And I think there are, you know, many buildings, um, you know, we can pick them each in a city. I mean, a one Vanderbilt or a three Bryant in New York or, you know, a, a Salesforce Tower or a one, 110 North Wacker in Chicago. I mean, there are those beacon type buildings that I think, you know, ultimately are, you know, emblematic of, you know, that level of desirability and will capture that sort of flight to quality. And as a result, they'll be able to sort of charge market leading and in some cases, you know, historic um, rents. Um, and then there's everything else. Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. It's Monday, December 3rd, and we're your hosts, Susanna Cavanaugh. And I'm Isabella Farr. So we're back from our little holiday break. There's a good chunk of news to catch up on, but Bella, why don't you tease our guest for today's episode first? Right. Today we're chatting with Jonathan Pierce. He runs Office and Life Sciences Investments for Ivanhoe Cambridge. We talk through how he's thinking about investing in office right now, given you know the state of the capital markets, opportunities for preferred and mezzanine financing, and how it helps to have a $100 billion plus parent company supporting you. For those who don't know, Ivanhoe Cambridge is owned by CDBQ. I would say the full name, but my French skills are non-existent. CDBQ is a huge pension and insurance manager in Quebec. Okay, that sounds good. Um, all right, so on to our top stories from last week and a few stragglers from the week before. So for nearly so for nearly two weeks now, a story out of Texas has been topping our charts. Reporter Joe Lovinger's piece on distress rippling through the Lone Star State. So the article looks at declining valuations and discounted sales. And we've seen this cropping up among Class B and C apartments, I would say, like Sunbelt wide, right? Yeah, definitely. Many of those are value add plays. So performance depended very heavily on renovations. They're almost like home flippers. But construction costs have risen and rent growth has flatlined or even fallen in some areas. And then, of course, there is the rise in interest rates. But reading the story, what really caught my eye was Joe's reporting that, quote, no segment of the asset class is safe, which isn't something we've really seen in other multifamily markets as much, I don't think. Right. So he wrote about how Class A units are feeling the pain, too, because of this huge pipeline of new construction. A bunch of units are set to come online over the next year and a half. The bottom line, some developers, owners, and retail investors aren't going to make it through. So there's been a good chunk of news on the signature loan front. Susanna, can you give us the highlights there? So two Mondays ago now, we got some rumors on who the leading bidders were on this $33 billion loan pool. And this is mostly for me to refresh myself here, but the loans are being sold after the FDIC took control of Signature Bank after the bank failed. Commercial real estate debt is what's for sale here. And about half of it is backed by rent-stabilized apartments in New York. The other half is collateralized by non-regulated commercial real estate. Perfect. So the FDIC broke up the loans to sell them because it's such an incredibly large portfolio. They've never sold anything this big at one time before. So the rent-stabilized loans are in nine pools, and then the CRE loans are in three. The Monday before Thanksgiving, Bloomberg reports that Blackstone is the lead bidder on the CRE debt. 
Then the Wall Street Journal reports that Related, alongside two nonprofits, is the lead bidder on the rent-stabilized debt. Got it. So is that anticipated at all, Blackstone for the CRE related for the rent-stabilized portion? I think that Blackstone makes sense. So talking to sources beforehand, everyone was saying, you know, it's going to be big private equity, someone with deep pockets coming in. The CRE debt is like $17 billion worth. So you need someone with a lot of money to be able to buy that, even if it's at a discount. We don't know what the bid price is there. And Blackstone also has noted that it has dry powder on hand that it's waiting to deploy. So this is sort of a good opportunity for that. Um, And Bloomberg also reported that Blackstone is in discussions with Rialto Capital to help service the loans. So between Blackstone and Rialto, they kind of tick both boxes. Blackstone is the money. Rialto has the servicing experience as a lender. The related team also makes sense to a degree. Can you tell us why? Yeah. So typically when the FDIC sells distressed debt, its goal is to get the most money possible, right? Right. But with this sale, it had conflicting goals, I guess we could say, because of this open secret that many rent-stabilized properties are just not doing well. And that's because of the 2019 rent law, which capped revenues, right? Yes, that's right. So the FDIC, when it went to sell this rent-stabilized loan portfolio, said that it had a, quote, statutory obligation to preserve affordable housing. And then it did reach out to tenant groups in the city and whoever else to see who those parties thought would be the best buyer for these loans. And the idea among all of them was they didn't want the buildings to fall into worse disrepair than they're in now. There's a lot of caveats around that, but I won't get into them. Um, And they also didn't want a lender to buy them that was then just going to turn around and foreclose on masks. So given those goals, I can see I can definitely see why the nonprofits would be great choices. But what about Related? Yeah, Related has experience in affordable housing, um, and it has money. So it's a good pairing that way. Okay, so Squares was something else that I had a question about. I read that there were bids that beat Related's, and you would think that in this case, the highest bidder wins all, but clearly the FDIC is really juggling different directives here. Yeah, that's right. And the final word, we're recording this on Thursday, November 30th. So the final word as of right now is we don't know if either Blackstone or Related has actually won. The Related Group's bid was only for about one third of the total rent stabilized loan book, which is $15 billion. Um, And we've reported that those loans really didn't see much interest. So basically, like there are a few things that could play out here. Um, I've broken them down in my mind. So A, related wins a portion of the debt, and then some other bidder or bidders we don't know about, they get the rest of it. Okay. B, the FDIC doesn't like the bid submitted on the rest of the debt, so whatever related didn't bid on, and the FDIC decides to pull those loans and then try to list them again, market them again in another round. C, The loan pool that Related bid on goes to what's called a best and final round. So Related, and there's two other groups that bid, I think, like around 80 cents on the dollar. Related's bid was 69 cents on the dollar. So they all go head to head to see who is willing to put up the most cash, and then the FDIC will give it to that party. Um, But the caveat there is they have to think that the bidder not just is offering the most money for the loans, but is going to do a good job servicing them. 
So on the CRE side, do we know for sure that Blackstone is the is the winner here? No, we don't. So we know that they emerged. So we know that it emerged as the lead bidder, but we also know that um, Starwood and Brookfield reviewed marketing materials as well. Um, and with that debt, the FDIC doesn't have that same obligation to affordable housing. So they they really do just want the most money. So it's possible that could go into a best and final round where, you know, the FDIC is pushing to see if Blackstone will bid higher or Brookfield, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Got it. So different priorities there. When will this all end? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully soon. Well, we'll see. So I've heard December 21st. I've also heard end of year. Um, December 21st seems to be the more likely end date when the FDIC wants to close everything. Um, And then once the FDIC selects its winner or winners, it's going to ask that group for a deposit. When it gets the deposit, it will tell the other bidders that they did not win um, and then that will be that. Got it. So we're really waiting on that deposit here. Some exciting holiday oh, yeah. watching for sure. <laughs> yeah, for me at least. Okay, so running through a couple more items. Last week, a major title company fell victim to a cyber attack. Hackers breached the systems of Fidelity National Financial, which owns Chicago Title. The hack threw a wrench in many deals, causing delays and open-ended postponements of closings in some instances. And Charlie Munger died last week. He was the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He was 99 years old, and he would have turned 100 on New Year's Day. All right. So I think let's get into the Ivanhoe Cambridge interview. Jonathan, thank you for coming on. If you could just take a second to introduce yourself and tell us what you do, and then we can jump right into some questions. Certainly. Hello, everybody. I'm uh, Jonathan Pierce from Ivanhoe Cambridge. I head up U.S. Investments, uh, Offices, and Life Science at Ivanhoe Cambridge, uh, and we are um, the real estate arm of the Case de Depot, which is Canada's second largest pension fund, and we are a global real estate investor, uh, playing all the major food groups. Uh, over four regions globally. Um, and the region that I'm involved with and the one that I think we're talking about today is the US. Tell me a little bit about Ivanhoe Cambridge's investment thesis right now. What are you across office and life sciences? What are you looking to invest in? And what are you kind of straying away from? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And if, you, and if you've got the answer, I'm all ears. Um, we are in, obviously, in, in, in quite some um, I won't say challenging times because I think with with uh, you know we, but we are definitely in dislocated in a dislocated market and uh, you know obviously we all read the headlines um, you know offices for sure um, have had uh, an element of disruption um, certainly um, exacerbated by the pandemic one could argue that it was already underway pre-pandemic um, but uh, most of what you read is very one size fits all. Um, and the real world is far more nuanced than that. It's much more shades of gray. We've got office assets that are performing extremely well, um, that are leasing up very well, that are, um, you know, basically fully leased or close to fully leased. And we're achieving record economics on those uh, assets. And we've got others that I think are more challenging. And so I, I think the important thing really is that the, it, it's very nuanced. It's um, it's much more shades of gray rather than one size fits all. And that's certainly what we're seeing on, on, on the office side. Um, you know, there's definitely pockets of pain. Um, and 
I definitely think that we are seeing a structural change in how people view offices and how people use offices. Um, but I do think that it's been exacerbated and almost exaggerated by the fact that there's been a pretty significant labor imbalance. Um, now that that labor imbalance sort of seems to be the air seems to be coming out of that balloon a little bit um, with some of the sort of uh, slowing economic indicators that we're seeing, we're starting to sort of get a better read of where we are. But I think, look, I think we are still playing the story out. Um, there's going to be winners and there's losers. Um, I've just been involved uh, over the last couple of days at a couple of conferences. And, you know, I'm seeing this sort of bifurcation, this sort of flight to quality. There's the haves and the have nots. And it's a fairly consistent set of theme across uh, across the asset class. And quite frankly, in, in most geographies within the U.S. On the life science side, um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, some of the same themes, but perhaps a little less exaggerated. Um, you know, life science, definitely the demand is, is slowed a little bit. Um, you know, funding has come off a bit. Um, but these aren't really sort of cause for concern um, at this point. I mean, this is really more they were coming off record highs, um, record NIH funding, record VC capital funding. So, yeah, they've, they've come off those peaks for sure. Um, but they're still sort of tracking at or above sort of historical norms. Um, and I think with life science, it almost was, um, you know, a wave of euphoria. Um, it was almost a bit like a gold rush. Uh, anybody with a sort of a defunct office building sort of thought that they could make it life science. And so, you know, it, it, it sort of became a little bit like the Wild West. There were no rules um, and there was a lack of discipline in the marketplace. And so I think, um, again, it's very much a case of the haves and the have nots. It's very much a bifurcated market. Um, I think well-located, highly amenitized, experiential ground-up projects that are purpose-built, that have many of the key ingredients that, you know, end users of life science space want, will ultimately fare okay. Um, they may take a little longer to lease. They may require a little bit more capital to lease them. But I think at the end of the day, the fundamentals are there. And many of the fundamentals about the sector that we like, such as aging population, personalized healthcare, cell and gene therapies, they're not going away. We're just scratching the surface of many of those things. And so, you know, directionally, we really like the sector. I think what we're really doing is taking a bit of a pause after the euphoria. And I think in many ways, it's a good thing because it will clear out some of the undisciplined uh, opportunities and players that we've seen in the space. I wanted to talk about kind of the challenges in the office market right now. Um, you know, we've had some pretty staggering reports come out that say valuations are going to drop by billions by 2030. Um, you know, there's remote work is still taking a hold. Um, how are you kind of grappling with buildings in your portfolios that are facing some of these challenges? Yeah. And look, I, I think it sort of goes back to, again, that the haves and the have nots. I mean, as I said, I mean, I think there are, you know, many buildings, um, you know, we can pick them each in a city. I mean, a one Vanderbilt or a three Bryant in New York or, you know, a, a Salesforce Tower or a one, 110 North Wacker in Chicago. I mean, there are those beacon type buildings that I think, you know, ultimately are, you know, emblematic of, you know, that level of desirability and will capture that sort of flight to quality. And as a result, they'll be able to sort of charge market leading and in some cases, you know, historic um, rents. Um, and then there's everything else. And so when you hear headlines like that, and they're absolutely true, um, you know, it's very important to view that it is nuanced and it isn't systemic. And I'd say a lot of the pain is sort of in the B and C class buildings. Um, because part of the challenge is, yes, there's less demand. Um, you know, we are finding that office users, 
you know, I mean, it varies by industry. Um, some have been much more successful, I think, in finance and banking about getting people back to the office on a on a fairly regular basis. Um, but others in more creative and technology type environments, you know, they're still struggling. Um, what we did with our portfolio is we really looked at it very hard and we took a deep dive on our portfolio and we really sort of segmented it into sort of three buckets. Um, and, you know, it's, it's almost like an A's, a B's and a C's really. And I don't mean class of building, but I just mean type of building. And so, you, you know, your first bucket, which might be your brand new construction, your best of the best, you know, really, you just want to make sure that you are, you know, utilizing, a, you know, judicious uh, amounts of capital just to make sure that you keep and maintain your competitive advantage. You're doing all the right things operationally. Um, you're capturing and leveraging that flight to quality and you're capitalizing on that and generating some real alpha. Um, the, the, the middle bucket is probably the biggest bucket. And that's the buildings that we think, you know, maybe they've got great bones, they're well located, their proximity to transit, good floor plate, good window line, um, but they just maybe need some love. Um, you know, maybe they're a little bit too commodity in their feel. And so we sort of feel that these buildings, quite frankly, represent the singular biggest opportunity because we feel that they are capable um, of transcending in front of that wave of obsolescence. And so, you know, we've got a two building complex on the river in Chicago, which is actually where I am today. Um, 10 and 120 South Riverside, and it's 1.4 million square feet. It's two 700,000 foot sort of sister buildings right on the river, spectacular views. But just, you know, I would say they needed some love. And so we're completely reimagining um, those buildings with, you know, new lobbies and pickleball courts on the plaza and fitness facilities that sort of are more uh, akin to an equinox than, you know, a few weights in the basement, like some office gyms still are. And it's much more experiential. It's much more sort of focused. I mean, you know, you hear the phrase earn the commute. Um, you know, you have to make it worthwhile for people to come into the office. And so that middle bucket to me, that's capable. Not everybody can pay one Vanderbilt or three Bryant's or, you know, uh, Hudson Yards kind of pricing. Um, but they want to have highly quality experiential real estate close to mass transits um, that, you know, their employees will be exciting. You have to give you have to give them something that they don't get at home or, or wherever they're choosing to work that day. The third bucket, and, I'm, you know, I think like all investors, we all have fortunately not very many of them, but we do have a few that we sort of view more as as the difficult ones, the falling knives, um, you know, where you have to seriously look like, is there an ROI? Is there a path to liquidity? Is there, uh, is it worth investing any capital? You don't really want to be putting good money after bad. And so these ones are like, the, in, in many ways, they're the most interesting part of my job because they're the real head scratches. You have to pick the lock on them. You know, should, could we be looking at a change of use? Could we be viewing this as a, you know, a building that's got some income, it's a covered land play, but basically it could be a future redev project for something else. Um, you know, residential conversions, they seem to be the flavor of the month these days, right? So very few buildings lend themselves physically to those attributes, but a lot of people spend a lot of time scratching the surface. I mean, there's vertical farming, there's storage, there's office to data center conversions. There's all different sort of things that you can do. And again, it goes back to, you know, active asset management, you know, really generating some alpha, you know, proactive leasing, um, really trying to tell a story. And, and quite frankly, the whole thing really boils down to we as investors, as owners, whatever you want to call us, 
we need to figure out what the customer wants and deliver that for them. Because if we don't, somebody else will, and we're going to be on the wrong side of that bet. Right. So, you know, whether it's finding a new investment or finding, you know, an existing asset that you have that you decide to put money in, how do you, can you walk me through how Ivanhoe Cambridge kind of makes that decision? Sure. Um, I mean, look, as you can appreciate, we are a uh, a global uh, investor. And so we can get, you know, um, returns in all different geographies and all different asset classes. And so, you know, in many ways, it's almost like you're you're competing for capital. Um, And so we look at it really on a risk adjusted basis and sort of say, okay, well, if we can get this kind of return in New York doing this, um you know is that the best place to put our money right now and you know there's lots of considerations i mean it might be the basis it might be how much geographical exposure we have you know are we overweight in that market or underweight in that market um it might be okay so we can get this return in new york but maybe we can get this return in sao paulo and it's a higher return but on a risk adjusted basis we like that better or we say okay this is you know, extremely disruptive. There's lots of risk here. There's currency risk, there's political risk, there's socioeconomic risk, there's geo, you know, so I mean, there's all different kinds of risk things. And we just sort of say, okay, you might get a higher return, but we're really concerned, you know, how that might go for us. Um, So so I think that forms part of the decision making. The other thing that forms part of the decision making is typically when we evaluate a new asset class or a new type of business, you know, we, we typically go indirect first um, and we do that because we really don't want to make a big mistake. Um, and so life science would be a great example of that. Like we were not invested in life science up until fairly recently. And so what we did with life science um, is we made two indirect investments uh, into funds. And, and the reason we did that, one is obviously hopefully to generate a, a, a good return, but two was really to put our nose in the current and really sort of understand the business, um, see how uh, these operators are underwriting the science and the chemistry, um, you know, what works, what doesn't, what constitutes a good building, what doesn't, which markets are desirable, really understanding the demand, the migration patterns, the supply, and a lot of indirect investments that give you access, particularly if you're a, you know, a, a more dominant or prominent LP like 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 we can be, um, you know, we're engaged. We ask questions. We participate. We go to the annual meetings. We, you know, we're we we, we are an active and engaged participant. And and quite frankly, we go to school, right? I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to sort of say, okay, how can we get as smart as we can as quickly as as, as we can, um, and so that you know, hopefully, we try and minimize the chance of of making a a, a big mistake on 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 the direct side. And then, you know, usually what happens and life science in the US is a great example of this is we then made a direct investment um, and we're delivering a project, um, you know, in about a year and a bit from now um, in, in, in Boston. It's a ground up project that we're doing with Lendlease and we're very excited about it um, because we think it's uh, it's in a really it's a mixed use precinct. It's going to have a lot of amenities. Um, and again, as we talked about life science, I mean, it's oversupplied right now, but it's oversupplied. There's a lot of what I would say, um, you know, less than optimal physical product. So if you take that out of the system and you really sort of focus on well-designed, well-specced, ground-up product, um, you know, yes, there's still definitely um, more supply than there used to be, but um, you're, you're really narrowing the field. And we believe that the fundamentals ultimately will 
will prove out. There's still good funding, as we've already talked about. And, you know, we're, we're, we're confident that we will see some success there. And with, you know, of, with the shifts in the capital markets, we've obviously seen a lot of defaults. Do you see this as a time f- to get in on opportunity for opportunistic investing to maybe come in at a lower basis point to buy up, a, you know, a property for, for cheap? For sure. Um, look, I mean, you know, one doesn't like to um, take advantage of somebody else's misfortune, but that's the reality of the world. And um, look, there are broken deals out there. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we've been looking at recently and we've participated on, you know, is on the mezzo preferred lending side of things. And, you know, it's a great way for us to get, you know, um, pretty, pretty compelling returns um you know with you know fairly good sort of downside cushion and you know quite frankly it could be a path to ownership of the asset and so you know right now and it won't carry on forever you know the mezzle the preferred market i mean you know you can be getting sort of low double digit returns quite handily um and so for 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 us i think that's extremely interesting because it allows you to um, you know, evaluate assets to look at assets and be potentially in a position that, you know, in the event that the sponsor does get into trouble, you've got a decent equity cushion ahead of you, uh, even if values continue to, to pull back. Um, but it gives you some optionality. You can decide, you know, how do you want to play that? And so, you know, that's certainly quite interesting. Uh, and look, I think cash and dry powder is king right now. Um, there's a number of groups I know that are raising money opportunistically for office with a view to doing exactly what you just described, which is a contrarian play to buy office at a very attractive basis. Um, for a group like us, I mean, look, we, we try and recycle capital. Um, and look, sometimes it may make sense uh, to sort of sell out of an investment, even if it means maybe taking, you know, a little less than what you anticipated, but putting that money to work and getting a higher return on a go forward basis. And so we're constantly looking at those kinds of levers as well, is where is our money working? Is it working in the right places? And is there an opportunity, even if it means taking a loss up front, to recycle some of that money into something that we think is gonna generate an even more compelling return going forward? And sort of crystallizing on one investment and then sort of you know, trying to run the tables on something you know, from a much lower basis. And so, you know, those are exactly the kinds of opportunities I think that, um, you know, are interesting. Um, I think, uh, you know, we've all seen the statistics and read the, the news about the wall of debt that is maturing in U.S. office over the next sort of two or three years. It's staggering. Um, and look, the reality is, is it's a case of the haves and the have nots. I mean, we are very fortunate by, by virtue of our parents and who we are that we are well capitalized and we're a long-term investor and we will be able to sort of, you know, work through this. But there are many sponsors who I think are hanging on to dear life with their fingernails. Um, and as debt rolls, um, you know, if they can even renew it, and that's a very big if, it's going to come with a fairly sizable equity pay down and they may not be able to do that. And so I think there's opportunities for groups like ourselves to either participate in those pay downs and take a position in the real estate or provide secondary debts or quite frankly, if there ends up being a forced sale because they can't do the equity pay down and the, the asset goes back to the lender, you know, that could also create an opportunity for an entry point at an attractive basis. Um, look, we've got, you know, a few assets that we would like to, um, 
um, you know, to, 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 to probably sell out of, um, you know, at, uh, when, when the time is right. Um, we have sold quite a lot of office um, sort of between 2015 and 2020, um, but we still have, you know, a decent amount of exposure. And for the most part, I think our assets are, are good assets. We feel uh, we feel good about them. We've got a plan for them. We know exactly where, where we want to go uh, and we're laser focused on executing our plan. But as I said, we've got probably a couple that we would recycle out of and uh, see if we can put that money to work doing something else. Um, and I do think there will be opportunities along the way. Um, I, I think there are some groups that um, unfortunately, um, you know, are not going to be able to sort of keep kicking the can down the road. I mean, I think there are groups right now that are are, are doing short term extensions and refinancing debt. And look, a lot of lenders right now are saying, hang on, I don't really want the keys back. Um, but at some point, there's going to need to be a workout phase for the cycle. Right. Survive. Exactly. Survive to 25. Somebody told mm-hmm. me yesterday, stay in the mix till 26. And then the other. Oh, wow. They're pushing it back a year. And then a colleague of mine this morning actually said, We'll be in heaven in 27. Now, <laughs> so I, I, I don't know uh, who's right and who's wrong, but um, look, I, I think we're in the, you know, maybe the third or fourth inning in this cycle. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's not going to be interest rate relief for a while. It's definitely higher for longer. We certainly ascribe to that view. Um, and, um, you know, I look, I think, I think discipline, uh, asset management, trying to generate some alpha from the assets that you have. And, and obviously, you know, holding some dry powder. So hopefully you can participate in, in opportunities as they arise. Um, you know, it's, it's probably a pretty good playbook going forward. Got it. Got it. So last question. Um, I wanted to talk about your parent, com- you know, parent company for a second, CDPQ. How does, you know, having CDPQ as a parent kind of impact the sort of returns that you have to make um, and how much cash you have to deploy since, you know, they manage so many pension plans and insurance programs? Well, firstly, I would say that we're extremely fortunate to have such a parent because, um, you know, obviously we're we're investing, you know, their money and the money that's coming in from the participants in those plans. Um, whereas I think there are a lot of groups that, you know, I think right now are, are sort of very starved for capital because either they can't raise it or, or, or you know, it's, it's all tied up. Um, so, look, I mean, I think CDBQ is, you know, basically you know, a, a capital allocator too, right? And so, you know, they've got money coming in each month or each quarter from the people contributing into the various different pension plans. And they have to decide where they can get the best risk adjusted return. And real estate is, 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 one of the, is one of the levers that they have to pull on. I mean, they've got, you know, they've got equity, they've got fixed income, they've got private equity, they've got infra, um, they've got real estate. And so, Typically, how it would work is that, you know, there'd be a certain allocation to to real estate or any of those other sort of categories. Um, and those allocations can sort of ebb and flow a little bit within the strategic plan. And, and each year, Ivanhoe and CDBQ will, will sort of sit down both doing their own strategic plans and also very much sit together and be very collaborative um, and sort of work through those strategic plans and sort of a lot of it depends on where the perception is um, from, you know, our risk and strategy teams and our business teams with their inputs. What kind of returns do we feel that we can generate over the next three to four years? And quite frankly, if it sort of feels like maybe real estate's, you know, maybe, I mean, it's obviously been a, a phenomenal contributor to CDPQ, um, you know, over the last few years, um, you know, over the next few years, I mean, 
you know, we have to sort of predict those returns and um, and, and and effectively pledge or promise a return to them and, and ultimately, um, you know, do our utmost to deliver on that return. And, um, you know, it may be that if they feel that the forward return in real estate is is they can get perhaps, you know, a better return in infra or or private equity or fixed income for the next sort of two or three years, then our slice of the pie you know, may go down a little bit, right? And the exact opposite can be if we think we're going to get outsized returns in, in real estate. So typically, as you come out of a cycle, you might see an enhanced allocation to real estate. But as you're going into a cycle, you might see, you know, a little bit of a tightening as well in terms of allocation and provision of capital for real estate investing. And so we live by the sword and we die by the sword. I mean, ultimately, it's up to us to generate performance and earn that trust uh, to continue investing their capital. Um, and a lot of it depends on, you know, they look at all the different ways that they could, all the different ways and places that they can invest. And then ultimately sort of, we come up with a, um, a, a I guess an allowance, uh, uh, you know, for, 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 for real estate and we, we work within those parameters. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're talking about the state of investment sales in New York. Tune in then.